Hi, Seth. How you doing today? Hey, Barry. I'm good. Yeah, thanks for joining <laughs> us. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So, um, Seth, could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, just so we have context for the conversation that follows? Is you know, um, your uh, you work as a hospice, right? No, I, sorry, uh, <laughs> a chaplain. Yeah, I'm a chaplain at a level one trauma center. Uh huh. Okay, and you're a you know you're um you're a Zen priest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Through Matsuoka. Um, what's that? Through Matsuoka. Yeah. Um. So, uh, can we talk a little bit about you growing up? You know, where you grew up, what your family was, was family life was like, any sort of religious mm-hmm. background you have. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, it was kind of I had kind of a weird uh, childhood when it came to religion because my mom is a she considers herself a mystic. She's a Christian, but okay. her Christianity doesn't fit any any kind of Christianity that you know is an actual like kind of Christianity. So when we were kids, I didn't really understand why we would always get kicked out of all the churches that we would be a part of. Okay, you know. And so um, my dad is agnostic. He doesn't really even think that it's important to think about religion. He thinks it's a waste of time, you know. So he, so we were kind of like between those two extreme poles. And whenever I um, got kicked out of the last church when I was a kid, I finally asked the pastor, like, why, you know, why does this keep happening? And he basically said, this is what Christianity is. Either practice that or get out. And so I got out. I started practicing Zen. So they, um, so they would actually kick you guys out, like disinvite you from coming. Yeah. How old were you when that last one was? I think that last one I was maybe ten or eleven. Mm-hmm. And um, like, what, what would she do? She would just speak up with what with her interpretation of Christianity. And I think it, I think it usually came through us as the kids, like at Sunday school and stuff like that. Like, you know, cause we'd be talking about the stuff that we were raised to believe and didn't know that it was, I don't think my mom was like flaunting. In faith. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like we would believe in reincarnation and stuff and they would be like, what the devil, especially here in Texas, you know, mm-hmm. you were born and raised in Texas. No, I was born in California, but we, moved around a lot when I was a kid because my mom was connected with the military and then mm-hmm. we settled down in Texas when I was about nine or ten. And your parent your parents stayed together through your childhood and teenage years? Yeah, yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you you believed in God as a growing up as a child then? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so would you characterize your childhood as a happy one or was a serious one? I mean I mean, it was a, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, that's okay. This is your party. Go ahead, please. It was a, it was a very, very happy childhood, I think, but I didn't think I realized it at the time. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, I thought it was a, a very dark one, but it was not. Mm-hmm. What aspects seemed dark to you at the time? Um, my uncle shot my aunt and then shot himself and we, uh, took in my mom took in all the kids who were very troubled at the time and mm-hmm. it was just a huge change in my life going from two kids to like 12 kids and I just and then my dad got real sick and there was just a couple I lost my faith you know what I mean so there was like some things that happened that were seemed huge at the time they seem huge from 
my perspective now as well. <laughs> Did you, um, hold were you when, when he shot your aunt and killed himself? I guess I was, it was right between first and second grade. So really young. So you got a really huge dose of impermanence at a very young age. Yeah. I, I really remember like when they took us there, you know, there was all the police tape and everything and my parents were freaking out. And so I just kind of wandered around to the backyard and I had given them this like rabbit. I remember I gave my aunt a rabbit, like pet rabbit. And uh, the dogs were like ripping it apart. And I was just back there looking at its head and looking at its eye, you know, and there was all these flies on its eye. And it was the first time I think I really like realized I was going to die. And this, and, um, and at that point, were you thinking about religion? I mean, how did, how did this tie into your experience or understanding of religion? Yeah. I, I turned to Christianity really fully mm-hmm. at that point. And I think, um, that was why I ended up burning out from it because I, I was like, wow, I really need to get, you know, into my faith and really find peace there because of what's happening. And then, uh, up losing the whole, whole thing. So it was like, you know, like I, I was very angry and very dark for a while. And mm-hmm. I think uh, that Buddhism helped me find what I was missing, what I lost, you know, just in a different way. When you were kind of in your Christian phase, did, did you have any experiences that you would consider like the Holy Spirit or any sort of kind of mystical connection? Yeah, yeah I've always had my whole life like really weird kind of experiences that I guess I would classify now as kind of like mystical experiences, but I don't really talk about them that much because I feel like it's... Well, that was my next question, so <laughs> I won't <laughs> ask. Um, so, um, but, you know, that kind of probably, it probably kind of reinforced just the reality of that maybe something is actually going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I ever was in danger of being an atheist of any kind. I always felt like there was something, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So in your, um, you know, your, in your teenage years, when you kind of lo- left your Christian faith, you know, what, did you go straight to Buddhism? Did you go through a period of searching or wh- what was that period like? Yeah, I, I was always drawn to Buddhism. You know, I, I would see the pictures or see it in movies or mm-hmm. a Buddhist monk, like, you know, singing or protesting or something and i had this weird really powerful draw to it but mm-hmm. i remember reading I, the first book my parents got me on buddhism was a book about like all jesus's quotes and buddha's quotes like next to each other and i thought that was super cool and then the second book i got on buddhism was all about i think maybe you know oneness but it was like <laughs> it was written real weird and it was talking about how the mom had died and been reincarnated as the fish that the son was like feeding to his dog. And, you know, and there was this whole, and as a kid, I was just like, this is crazy. Like this is way crazy. So I kind of stepped away from Buddhism and got way more into Taoism for a while. And then through the storytelling and Taoism, I kind of got really drawn into the Zen stories and Mm -hmm. came from there. So when you were saying you were into Taoism, was this mostly reading? Did you did you do any practices? Did you did you do qigong or tai chi or anything like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, I was real into kung fu for I've been doing it for almost almost twenty years now, I guess, and 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of that, you know, like Qigong and the like breathing through the Dantian and like the different like, you know, chakra points and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I, I did do Tai Chi for a little while, but it was more Chan style, which was not really like oriented on more of the religious stuff. It was a little bit more like physical. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I did Tong Bay, which was, had a lot of, a lot of Tai Chi and Taoist stuff in it. So I think. I was practicing it in that as close as I could. It's not like you could find a Taoist teacher in Texas. Right. Your, um, your Kung Fu teacher, would, would he kind of sprinkle in kind of mystical, spiritual things into the class? Yeah. Yeah. He's a, I, he, now he practices under some Tibetan teacher, but all of my life he was studying Zen under a priest. So, and I mean, he taught meditation and Zazen to his like more senior students and stuff. And mm-hmm. it was all, all, in through the training because it was more traditional kung fu mm-hmm. you know so and he's a chinese teacher so it's like he's he's um culturally chinese yeah i believe so mm-hmm. but asian one right yeah. yeah yeah and um interesting did you did you ever get to participate in the zazen the meditation sessions yeah. or yeah yeah yeah, yeah. He so would have, would... He... go ahead please oh yeah it happened in it happened uh, with him. He would teach like sitting to his more senior students, but at the time I wasn't really an advanced student. So I didn't get to do a lot of the like big sitting things. But when I went to Naropa for college, we did a whole bunch of those meditation retreats, and, you know, sessions and things like that. And, mm-hmm. and there was the whole like Shambhala curriculum that they like weave through there. Cause it's kind of like a cult. And yeah. It's a whole thing. You know? Did, uh, um, do you like how, you know, how much of that teacher's influence do you think was in your life that led you towards like Naropa University and Zen and practice? Do you, do you think you would have found it anyway, or do you think that was kind of the key? Hard to I say. Think, yeah. Yeah. It all kind of came together at the same time in my life, but I was already looking for it. I think I came to Kung Fu because I was already looking for Zen. Right. In a way. Okay. I just yeah. didn't know, you know, but I think I would have found it anyway. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I was, so it was like you were drawn to him because of the spiritual element of the practice. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, did you, at this age, did you have any kind of driving, kind of great doubt, you know, like, like you know, why am I here? Why do we die? Like, did you, do you have any, any of those kind of questions that kind of really drove you? Yeah, I, I was, um, the first question was like hell. That was what really kind of pulled me away from Christianity. I just couldn't accept it. You know, and um, then it kind of became about death. I was so terrified, and I still am very scared, but mm-hmm. it was a lot different back then. It's a lot more peace about it now, you know, the fear of losing your loved ones and mm-hmm. of dying. And I just, um, I wanted that relationship with the sacred that I had before. Mm-hmm. I was looking for that. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, I imagine that's a big reason why you picked Naropa University. Yeah. yeah. How, how did you know about it? Like, how did you discover it? I was teaching meditation, actually, like, just, you know, I'd learned like some basic stuff and I'd kind of been doing it off and on my whole life through my mom. So I was teaching what I knew around the community. And um, there was a, a girl who was going to the class that said, hey, you know, I'm I heard about this school. You should check it out. And she showed it to me and I went to the website and I was just like, wow, this looks so cool. Cause I, I mean, I'd been, I'd been in a 
a desert, basically. I was like the only person that even knew, I think, about Buddhism at the time. You know what I mean? That's the, the spoke English, at least in yeah. like the tri-city area that DFW that I was in. And it's not like it is now. It's a little bit more, you can get to places now. They have temples and things like that, and, mm-hmm. you know, meditation centers. But back then I, was, I thought that Naropa was kind of like a, like a, you know, special kingdom. Mm-hmm. So is Naropa, is it, um, is it an accredited, I've never really understood. Is it like an accredited university? Do you get like a, like a real bachelor's degree there or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I did, but it, it kind of goes in and out. Like it, apparently it loses its accreditation and then it gets it back and then it loses it and it gets it back. So it's always kind of like on the edge. So it really depends on when you go there, which I went there when it was accredited. So I'm good. <laughs> Just sneak right in. <laughs> did, um, did, um, so your mom, so you meditated as a kid with your mom then? Yeah, my, I mean, yeah, all my life. My mom even tells this story, like she got, she met my dad on the run from the law <laughs> and uh, she was in jail pregnant with me. And she talked, tells me the story about how she was, you know, teaching the prisoners how to meditate and stuff like that. So like, mm-hmm. that's, I was doing it in the womb. Was she kind of a hippie or? No, she was a very, very angry um, orphan. Okay. But, you know, she'd been molested and abused and just tortured by Christianity all her life. And I think that she also, didn't want to give up her faith, but had to find her own way to it. Um, So when you're at Naropa University, was that just a, you know, like a paradigm shift of, because, you know, growing up in, you know, conservative, was it Houston area or? Uh, Fort Worth. Fort Worth. So growing up in like kind of conservative Fort Worth, and I imagine pretty culturally homogenous, was going to Naropa University, was that just a mind-blowing experience for you or yeah yeah it was like freedom you know was, I just remember people talking to me about like the diamond sutra on the street just some guy talking about it and I just started talking to him about it and I thought this is crazy like you know what I mean like I don't think anybody else in Texas I that I knew like even knew what Buddhism was and this guy's like having an in-depth conversation with me about the diamond sutra like I just it was amazing it was amazing it was the first time I got to meet you know Zen teachers it was the first time I got to encounter buddhist teachings and things like that it was it was an incredible time mm-hmm. what um what town is naropa in older Colorado. Oh, okay. yeah okay and um so was it so you you had the like the regular curriculum like math and english and all that kind of stuff oh. no they don't <laughs> they had like one math class at naropa and i think like only one major that required it by law was the only one that took it and they basically I mean, made it like so easy. It was like we had classes like meditation class and um, uh, traditional Eastern arts class and like Taoism class. And then there'd be like, uh, you know, a, a class on each of the chakras. And then there was a class just about Chokum Trungpa and how awesome he was because it was kind of like a you know, kind of culty thing going on. Right. Was he still alive at that point? No, he was. It's, it's his students that all run it now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they, they they have a lot of dysfunction that's coming out of the woodwork. Very, it was a very interesting place. I mean, it was a very good place. Like they did a lot of good work there, and also it was very weird. Yeah. Did you? Um, so you mentioned. So was there one? Um, so you're kind of into Taoism, and then you're kind of introduced to more Buddhism there. What was there kind of one teacher or 
lineage or, you know, tradition that kind of really spoke to you at that point in your life? Yeah, I think it was, um, I really liked EQ a lot. I liked the way that he. The 13th century Zen. Yeah. Yeah. I liked the poetry. I came to Zen through poetry, really. You know, like Ryokan and Nikyu, like I I would go read their poems in the mountains all the time and Mm -hmm. sit and I just kind of really fell in love with it. I I thought that at the time that Zen was sort of free of all the like religious trappings and stuff that I hated so much. But now I see that's not really so. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was very romantic period for me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I remember my first time going to San Francisco Zen Center just being like, what? Yeah. not meet my expectations at all. You know? yeah. um, so, um, so you said you, you mentioned you met like a Zen teacher there. Do you remember which one it was? Oh my goodness! It was a student of. Um, oh my gosh! Yeah, it's right on the tip of my tongue. I actually know this. Richard Baker has a center out there, right? Yeah, I, went to go see, I went to go see Richard Baker and uh, I was turned away. <laughs> really? What? Yeah, they what? said he was too busy to, like, to receive any like pilgrims. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like they were busy like working on the like some feud. It was like a lawsuit between him and some other new uh, Tibetan temple over land that like shared back there. But there was another guy who was teaching at the time. He was an older man he was teaching zen at the school which apparently daiho the guy in our lineage the you know the uh-huh. my teacher's teacher he apparently taught at naropa too a while i didn't know that but yeah, after him there was a guy who studied with uh it's a, the real famous white guy that wrote the five pillars of zen or wrote the what five pillars of zen i think is what it's called oh, three but you mean uh capolo um three yeah. pillars of zen yeah i think it was one of his students that was teaching there at the time and then there was oh. another temple down the way too from a, a Korean teacher. I met both of them. Did, would you go join their sittings or retreats or anything? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also I took their classes at Naropa, which were basically just Zen retreats and mm-hmm. stuff like that really anyway. Mm-hmm. And then were you pretty much hooked at that point or were you still kind of yeah searching around? No, I was hooked. I thought I thought I was going to be a Zen monk in a temple. You know, I probably would have at this point in my life, I would have tried to find something like what Mito Moore's got going on and just like disappeared into that for the rest of yeah. my days. But yeah. I fell in love in college and I just decided that I didn't really want to be a monk anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so then I was like, what am I going to do with my life? And that was when I took a class on uh, dying and talking to people who were dying. And uh, mm-hmm. that's when I found out about chaplains and I, I went from there. What What was your major when you were at Naropa? Or do they, do they have majors? Religious studies. Religious studies, okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what uh, what about that class kind of hooked you on the subject? Like what what resonated um, there? I think I um, one I was like, wow, that's something that I can do. That's not all the way going into being like a celibate, you know, sealed away cloistered monk, and mm-hmm. I can still practice Zen. But mm-hmm. I think the main reason I went there is because I was still really, really struggling with the whole thing of death. Mm-hmm. really bad you know the existential grapplings and i i just thought maybe if i throw myself right into the fire of it and i help other people die maybe i'll find something that some mercy that i need you know mm-hmm. and uh, what what were the steps to um to become a chaplain from that point so you graduate you have a girlfriend 
uh, what yeah. kind of what were the next steps from there? It was actually, I mean, it it was kind of, I got really lucky or really blessed, however you want to like think about it, because mm-hmm. I probably should not have ever made it this far. But um, I think it helps helped by the fact that I went back to DFW Fort Worth, where again there was no Buddhism at all. So whatever I told people Buddhism was, that that was Buddhism as far as you know the Baptist preachers were concerned. They didn't understand or care, mm-hmm. and so like nobody, there was no competition. There was no you know I was I was pretty much a um, like a multi-religion type hire you know they were like oh wow we can have somebody who's not just a baptist preacher on staff that makes us look really good mm-hmm. so so you didn't have any chaplain training like formal oh, I had a lot yeah that's even to get into the program is what i'm kind of talking about like i you're supposed oh, to have okay. to go for a master's of divinity which is three years before okay. you can even try to get into cpe like and everybody kept telling me all the chaplains that i would ask would say you know unless you get that you're dead at the door you know what i mean but I just thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And I was training with Shoji at the time to be a priest. And I, I just, uh, I lied and said I was already a novice priest when I wasn't one for yet. It was like, I still had like another six months of training and yeah, that. And, uh, they let so me the CPE. So you connected with Shoji, who's our, you know, for people watching this, our, you know, uh, both of our teachers. Um, so you connected with him prior to starting the chaplaincy training. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did actually. How did you uh, meet Soji? Facebook, I, I imagine. Yeah, I was. Um, I had been made the moderator of like a Zen poetry group, and Soji would go on there and just piss people off all the time and do what he does, you know. And uh, I think he pissed me off too at one point. Like I was like, who the heck is this guy, you know? And then uh, yeah. one of the other moderators started studying under Soji and um, ended up being his first student, mm. and he kind of pulled me in. I see. And um, what was, uh, you know, what how, what was that training like initially for you? Well, I was trying to decide. First, I found out, okay, so I can train online, which is pretty great. And there was at that the time, nobody was doing that. Like every teacher I talked to always said, no, there's like this energetic exchange that happens between master and students of so teaching online is, mm-hmm. you know, lies. But then that was before COVID when everybody started doing it now miraculously. Right. And so I found the only two online teachers that were there was Shoji and uh, Tree Leaf with, mm-hmm. uh, you said you already did yeah. an interview with him, right? Jundo, so, yeah. Uh, I'm going to do one later, yeah. Jundo. So I, I was kind of picking between the two of those and mm-hmm. I just ended up going with Shoji because I kind of liked him in the initial interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, what well, can you talk a little bit about your training with him? What that was like? Yeah, it was, um, we would meet for Dokusan online every week. And I had reading assignments, kind of like he modeled it after a, a master's program or a doctorate program, because that's what he was most familiar with in his academic studies. So we had all these books to read, and then we would have to discuss our understanding of it, you know, and then we would go through the sutras and we'd go through the teachings. And then I had to fly out there to his his little temple monastery house and, you know, do the sessions and things like that and do the work around the garden he has a japanese garden that we would work in and stuff for our uh, our working meditation and mm-hmm. sanbo and stuff yeah so you had an interesting experience during one of those sessions do you are you are you open to talking about it or you're talking about the, the last one the one where i kind of feel like i had a pretty crazy experience 
Yeah. I mean, you've alluded it to me, but I've never actually heard the details. And it, it, some people don't like to talk about it. And if you don't want to, I totally respect that. Well, it, it's okay, I guess. Um, I was working in the garden with Shoji, mm-hmm. and um, I'd been there for, I don't know, 10, 20 days, something like that. Just mm-hmm. It was like an extended, you know, just sitting and training with him every day. And um, I just was out sitting in the garden. I'd been sitting a, a lot that day, and it was, the sun was almost coming down over the mountain so it was like everything was kind of gold and this it just felt like like everything got real quiet and the dragonfly this dragonfly like just kind of came and landed like right in front of me and like when it its feet touched down on the rock it was like that hole inside of me that had been there Mm -hmm. since I think I lost Jesus Mm -hmm. you know that hole that I had kind of even forgotten was there almost I just kind of thought it was just who I was but it Mm -hmm. it just went away Hmm. beautiful (laughs) and it was just went away and everything was quiet like I didn't I was like aware of everything but I wasn't I don't remember any thoughts. I don't remember thinking. It was, it wasn't it, and there wasn't any problems, which was huge for me because I had so much anxiety and depression, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, so my own experience working with Shoji was, you know, the way his, kind of the way that we worked well together was, you know, I was very much um, kind of stuck in kind of past mystical experiences and, he was really good at just, you know, I, how do I even articulate it? Like, um, you know, just grounding me, you know what I mean? Like, the, and, and it's, and a lot of it, it, it was just his energy. But, I mean, there's a huge before and after in my life, you know, kind of that process with him. Did, mm-hmm. Does that resonate with you at all? Did you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so, um so, so you're working with John Soji, and um, so you applied for this. Uh, so, you know, in um, the Clear Mind Zen Order, you're, uh, you know, part of your priest training is that you kind of do some like Dharma service, you know, you know, it's kind of religious or spiritual service. So, was that the chaplaincy for you? Yeah, Shoji said that that would count, but he said that I would never get in. Okay. <laughs> he said I shouldn't even waste my time. But I, you know, I, I applied into the CPE program and they let me in and, uh, it was, it was really crazy. It was like mm-hmm. Socratic method. So they just were like, you know, go out and talk to this dying person and then come back and tell us how you failed and we'll analyze that and you'll fail a little less next time. Mm-hmm. Um, can you, could you talk in general, like what, so like, were you just thrown to the walls directly into a clinical situation? Was there classroom work that? led up to it first was the read like what what is the can you talk a little bit about the process of becoming a chaplain yeah it's like um when people kind of ask me how to do it like the first thing i tell them is that the interview process is not like other interview processes for C, like cpe mm-hmm. they want to know if you have the capacity to step outside of your own faith and your own beliefs and engage someone else's 
So they immediately from the very beginning start trying to just like break you down. Mm-hmm. And people freak out in those interviews because I was a part of those interviews later on in my career. Like mm-hmm. it's it's really intense. And then uh, once you're in the training, it's just a process of just grinding you against every other person in the group who has all their own, you know, theology and things like that. And then you're just, yeah, you're just literally sent, sent out. They don't give you any like, you know, this is what you do. It's just like, here you go. Here's this person who is in horrible agony, or here's this person who's having the worst day of their entire life. And here's this person who lost their kid. Here's this person who, you know, dropped their baby. Here's this person who did this just horrible, unspeakable tragedy. Mm-hmm. What do you do? And then they make so, you write these things oh, called so. verbatims, which are just like uh, basically a, a conversation about what happened. And so, then they sorry. analyze them. Sorry to interrupt real quick. Were these hypotheticals they would give you or would you actually go see patients like that? No, yeah. no real, real okay. people. Yeah. I made some terrible, horrible mistakes mm-hmm. and they just use the people like guinea pigs for us because it was a learning hospital. And that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah it was real. And so the analysis of your interaction with them comes from the verbatims. Yeah, from the verbatims and from the teacher getting to know you and kind of understanding what your issues are because they really like hammer on you being, you know, what's the, when it's like a congruent, they want you to be congruent with what you really believe because they feel like if you don't have the capacity to, deal with your own stuff, your own darkness, then whenever you're trying to deal with these patients and something mm-hmm. hooks you, something reflects something in you that triggers you, you're not going to be able to stop from doing some serious damage, mm-hmm. you know, because we're not there to try to preach or convert or fix anything. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say the role of the chaplain? If it's not those, what is the role of the chaplain? I, I think that one of my teachers said it best when he said the role of a chaplain is to create a space that is safe and reflective that the other person can fill with their sacredness and what they need and their pain, whatever they need to fill it with, and then be able to look at it mm-hmm. and help them find their own answers, get a hold of their own spiritual resources. Mm-hmm. We're like fingers pointing at the moon, you know? Mm-hmm. What, um, so would they, would they give you any practical advice such as, you know, don't mention this. This is how you approach somebody. I mean, th- so there was like that yeah. type of training, right? It yeah. wasn't like, yeah. here's your first day, go into this room. I mean, no, was it like, was. It yeah. was like that. They didn't give it to you in the beginning. They make you do it and then you come back and then they make you an example of everybody else in the, for everybody else in the room. And they say, this is why this didn't work. Do this instead. Yeah, interesting. That's that's very much kind of like the Japanese Zen training. Yeah. So, so did you, did you, did you come in with a cohort of people that all came in together as trainees at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. How, how, what percentage of those do you think lasted, you know, from the first day to maybe a year afterwards? Out of the original, I think it was like 16 people. I think three of us still practice chaplaincy. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Adventist who came because she had been broken by her church. Her church had just done unspeakable things that I won't even share here. Mm-hmm. And she was trying to keep from losing her faith. She still practices. And then the Catholic whose mom had been denied 
um, communion for like 20 years because her husband left her. And he came because he was trying to make peace with, I think, the rituals and things that his tradition was burdened by and how to like navigate that and make sense of that and me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other ones, I think, all burned out or left either in the program or after, soon after. It's got one of the highest burnout rates of like any career. Yeah. Um, so your your initial motivation was to be um, um, kind of end of life chaplain. Were you thinking you were going to go to a hospice or what um, was that kind of your goal? Yeah, I, I originally had been told always that by any Buddhist teacher that I talked to who had any experience with chaplaincy, they always said that Buddhism ends up in hospice. In every culture, they said that's where Buddhism makes its money. And so I assumed that's where I was going to be, but um, hospice chaplaincy is, it's not very fun, not because of the people that are dying, but because of like, I mean, that's not fun, but what's really also a problem about it is they just really abuse you schedule wise. Like, you know, you have to just be on call 24 seven, basically you have no life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also really kind of fell in love with trauma and like the emergency room and the, the energy of that and the excitement of that. And, you know, the, just the teams working together in the hospital setting. I just feel like it's a very sacred place. Like things happen there that are almost like the Zen stories that I used to read. You know, I don't feel like that happens in other places in real life, but there, like we can't cover it up and we can't hide from mm-hmm. these sort of primordial things. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so you go through your training. Is there like, at what point are you a chaplain? Like, is there, is it a multi-year process? Is there, like, like how do they evaluate you? How do, like, how do you be, so you walk in the door, you're a training chaplain your first day, like what, like how do you actually become a chaplain from there? Yeah, they have levels that you accomplish. Um, so you, you finish um, a unit, what's called a unit, which is a certain period of time of training. And then you have to be evaluated and you have to pass from your teachers. And then you have to go to other chaplain teachers and they evaluate you and you have to pass all of them too kind of like, you know, almost like moving up ranks in, in Buddhism kind of thing. You know, it's what it really felt like to me. You go into these tiny little rooms, almost like Dokusan, and they have these real like intense things where they try to cut you up and try to find places in you that are un, undeveloped mm-hmm. uh, weaknesses that are going to hurt people. And you just have to, I took uh, myself, I have eight units. So that's, it took me about two years of residencies before mm-hmm. I was ready to finally just work as a PRN chaplain, which I did for another like four years before I finally. What does that chaplain. stand for, PRN? That's when you're just on call. You're just on cool. call, like, okay. like anytime, all the time. And uh, so during the first two years before the PRN, is that, are you paying tuition? They pay you a real tiny stipend, um, which for me was still more money than I'd ever made. So I was happy, but all the other chaplains were miserable, like saying that they just couldn't afford anything anymore. <laughs> and uh, you, you have a small stipend and you just, you work off of that and you work like 70 hours a week or something crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's no, there's no tuition. It's just, you give your time and you get a, you get the, um, yeah, kind of residency. Is that, is that the typical chaplain training experience that people have? regardless of geographical location i mean yeah other than that they would go to a they would have a masters of divinity and all that you know they would go to a seminary other than that that's the that's the route to becoming a chaplain is through cpe and um what does that stand for certified uh 
clinical pastoral education. Okay. It's all through Christian terms. Like I think I told you before, like it's like yeah. Buddhism doesn't really have a presence there yet. So you have to translate everything through Christian language. Did you, um, so the first couple of days when you started that training, did, did you have any second thoughts or, or were you think, or did it just feel right? Like, this is what I meant to do. Or were you like, this is not what I expected. What the hell did I sign up for? <laughs> or both? I, um, I took to it like a fish in water, man. I'm a kind of a intense person. I need like that kind of intense stuff in my life or I get, I start feeding in on myself, I think, and tearing my own self apart. Yeah. And I just loved it. I loved it. It was like, this was the first time I really felt like I could practice the art of chaplaincy, you know, and I wanted to get better. I wanted to have more skill in it. I, I wanted more knowledge and I'm not usually like that with things. Mm-hmm. Cool. And um, do it, do it, did you have any memorable early patients that you might be able to kind of share some stories about? Yeah. 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 Um, I've been writing about them and, you know, in my book. And I remember one of the first ones I wrote was about this pastor. He was a, a pastor who had gotten dementia. He'd been mm-hmm. a pastor for like 60 years or something. He was an old man and he was in the ER and I found, I was talking to him before we had figured out who he was. And he was just going on these beautiful, beautiful, you know, monologues about God and about life and love, but it was also jumbled and didn't make any sense. You know, it was just like non sequiturs, but I just listened to that like in awe until I finally met his daughter and she explained like what was going on. It was, and there was another lady that I think I talked about in my Dharma talk the other day where it was, um, she was an unrepentant child molester. Mm-hmm. And um, because of the abuse that's happened in the history of my family, that was something that was very triggering to me. Mm-hmm. And I, that was a big moment for me because I remember having to step out in the hallway for a moment and I had to decide if I was going to have compassion for this person or not. If I was going to really stick to what I believe, you know, that everyone needs help and everyone's suffering and I was able to do that. And that, I think that was a big I think that's a thing that a lot of people leave chaplaincy for. They can't, they can't do that for somebody that represents their demons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you, uh, so you're a Buddhist chaplain in a kind of a Christian context. When you walk in a room, do they, they just assume you're a, like a Christian preacher, right? Yeah. I'm mean, usually, they think I'm either Baptist or uh, the, uh, whatever they want, Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I don't know why. You kind of have that fire and brimstone energy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, do, do they ever ask you, like, what denomination are you? Yeah, I get to ask that a lot. And I'll usually just say I'm non-denominational. I don't uh-huh. really want to deal with it because it's just a hurdle to care. And like, they don't want me saying that I'm a Buddhist priest unless it's like very, unless it's useful for that patient. They usually don't want me to because it's like you get kicked out immediately. Has or, that happened? Oh my God. So many times, man. So many times. And I had to learn that early on because I was insistent. I was like, no, I'm going to be who I am and I'm going to, you know, help these people and know actually they're going to think that you put the devil in them because you laid your hands on them and you prayed and you were not in the spirit of Christ. And mm-hmm. like Texas is Texas is Texas. Yeah. Right. So, so taking a step back, like what is the actual, like in, in a, in a, hospital setting like you're in what is the role of a chaplain what does a chaplain actually do we have a couple things that are kind of our main responsibility like for one we work the morgue which doesn't really make any sense but it's kind of a really old old thing 
from when the churches and the graveyards were one thing. And so they want the chaplain being the one that puts the bodies in the morgue and removes the bodies and gives them to the funeral home. They don't want anybody so, handling the dead. Not from the room to the morgue, right. but the morgue to the right. morgue. Well, we go to the room because we're supposed to be there at every death. We show up at the death. You know what I mean? And if the person is dying, it's our job to be with them while they're dying. It's our job to then also be with the family after they've died and then to be with the, the body as it comes down to the morgue put it in the morgue, release it to the funeral home and all that. We're also there for um, trauma support. You know, whenever something is crazy going on, we're there to de-escalate situations because people treat chaplains different. Like they, even when they're so angry and threatening to murder somebody and, you know, banging and throwing chairs and they're freaking out, lost in grief or rage. But then they like, you say, I'm the chaplain. And they kind of, it's, it's a different, you know what I mean? Like a different hat, even if the next minute they're going back into it, like when they're talking to you, that for some reason pulls people out of it enough that you can kind of deescalate things sometimes. So, so, so if there's, if there's some sort of drama or tension, they'll, they'll say, you know, bring a chaplain. Yeah. How does that, how does your work get designed? Is there like chief chaplain that signs you patients or? How? Uh, we have floors, we have floors assigned to us. And then, um, like depending on as, as how many chaplains are there is how much of this hospital, how much of the pie of the hospital is yours to manage at that point, mm-hmm. you know? And so sometimes you're the only one and you're just running from fire to fire in the whole hospital. Mm-hmm. What, what percentage of time do people ask you to pray for them? See, I think that was interesting because, you know, Josh is, Josh Paschwitz is a real, uh, he's real trained in clinical pastoral education too, but he said that people don't really ask him to pray that much. But I get asked, maybe it's because of where I'm from, like in this area, I get asked almost every visit. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that's all they want. They don't even want to talk to you. They just want you to be a prayer machine and then get out. Is it a silent prayer or is it something you intone? No, you pray out loud, which has been, I had, it was a whole thing I had to kind of learn to get comfortable with and work with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's weird. Kind of like a set tool, toolkit of prayers that you use. For- yeah. Yeah. I've got like a, I've learned a lot from the other Christian chaplains. And I think the thing that a lot of pastors do is they kind of have like a couple of sentences that they string together pretty frequently. And it's almost like rappers, you know what I mean? Like they have this thing where they, they pray and then they tailor in the stuff that they're supposed to tailor in. And then they go back into the leg, you know, and it ties to this and this and this, and then you have your prayer and nobody knows the difference. Jesus loves you and you got a broken arm. and Yeah. 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 You always got to say thank you to God. You know what I mean? <laughs> For something in there, you got to fit that in. You got to say Jesus's name at the end. Like there's the different like landmarks. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're dealing with patients that are kind of facing life and death situations, do you, do you see a huge variance in how people face that stark reality? Or do you see some kind of patterns that most people go through? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think there's definitely um, some things that seem to be almost almost basic, like for all humans. And even then, there's there always are exceptions to the rules, though. They're very interesting when you see that. But mm-hmm. I would say there's a huge variance, huge variance between. And it's not what you think either. It's not just like it's not just the people that are very, very religious that are at peace. That does help them. The ones that are super orthodox religious. But it's really a lot of times I find that they're actually just not allowed to show that they're afraid, but they're still afraid. 
mm-hmm. or they're still struggling or they're still in pain. They just don't let themselves show it. Mm-hmm. And then you have other people on the other end that have no faith at all, but sometimes they're, they have like just a, a piece that they can't even explain that just comes over them. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's a real thing that the Christians talk about, about the gift of peace at the end. Some people just get it and some people don't. And I don't know why. I, I've, I've long wondered if awakening is kind of a manifestation of that, that you kind of artificially create in that, whatever that kind of neurological or, you know, yeah. dynamic is that allows you to have that piece is something you, you can kind of like access early when you're not actually kind of needing it, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. It's like practice. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. Um, so what, what would you say you've learned from people like learn from your patients? Uh, I've definitely learned that grief comes in waves. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned that a place like a hospital or an emergency setting really wants you to go into your future. You mm-hmm. want to go into what's going to happen and it feels really useful, but it's mm-hmm. not. It's not. It's a waste of your energy. And really, you have to cross bridges as you come to them, which is so, so hard to do. But that's what I try to try to get people with me. I'm like, we're going to stay here. We're not going to go into what if we're going to if, if they're going to die, we'll deal with that when they die. Right now, they're alive. Right now, we're holding to that. We're going to be here. And that is. Is that for the family members or the staff or all yeah. the above or or even the person dying? Yeah whatever's going on it's like fear needs the future mm-hmm. how often do you find yourself being support for the staff themselves yeah i mean probably every day every mm-hmm. single day we especially focus on the staff at the level one hospitals because they just get nobody works at the community hospital for money you know what i mean like the people that are working there are doing it because they they really care and there's mm-hmm. some really just monstrous things that happen there every single day and they're just in it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Matt, you know, you, you hear doctors talk about com- compassion fatigue. Have you, yeah. Yeah. do you think you encountered that at all? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm kind of going through it a little right now because it was just, I've had a real rough, rough couple of weeks and it's like, it hits you, you know, you really, you really, <laughs> it gets to you and you gotta like, you gotta work through it and wash it off again and again and again, find self care because if you don't, you burn out. And we just had a chaplain just burn out just the other day. And it was, it left? Yeah, they left in a, a blaze of a fire, basically. It wasn't mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you see yourself sticking with it for a while? I hope so. I don't know what else I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, are there... Um, so... You told me the story of the um, the homeless, the yeah, homeless guy who um, was kind of beat up by the gangs and stuff, but yeah. seemed to have a wisdom. Could you could you talk a little bit about that guy? I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, there there's a guy. He's he's homeless and he comes in, you know, pretty frequently, mm-hmm. and he doesn't really talk at all, you know, and he gets beat up a lot. I don't know if he's made somebody angry. In Fort Worth, we got a lot of gangs and stuff. I don't know if he has made some enemies on the streets or if he just, because of who he is. I don't know why he gets so savagely beaten, but they, I mean, they beat him. 
and they broke his leg last time and he doesn't ever carry any hatred or any blame this guy's like really you know all he does is read his bible and look out the window and he'll talk to you but it's kind of like the things he says are just they don't seem like they have anything to do with what you're talking about but they kind of do in a way a little bit i kind of find myself thinking about it later on you know he's like he's that kind of like sage type archetype guy and (laughs) and he got he talked to me the other day i wrote a story about it and it was like he he said some stuff that was like i mean it sounded like a buddhist sutra like he was saying you know but it was all christian language but he was talking about getting past the ego and can you remember um, any of it i don't kind of put you on the spot sorry i remember it really stuck with me when he said you know i'm free i'm free i'm finally free to be able to just because i was trying to get him off the street i was trying to figure out how to get him off the street with the caseworker and he was like i don't want, want to be here I like it here. I, he seems educated too. When this guy talks to you, he's got like a, he knows what he's saying. You know what I mean? I feel like this guy has got at least some kind of, some kind of education, but he, he says, I want to be here. I want to be on the street because I'm free. Like he's like, I can, I gave up all my possessions and everything became so clear. And I don't, I don't have to do things for myself anymore, for my ego and for my needs. Like I can just finally follow what Jesus said and give up all my possessions and follow him. And I can help people. I help people every day. And he said, I said, you know, man, I'm, I'm kind of in that business. Like I'm trying to get free too. It's really hard. You know, <laughs> that's tough business, you know? And he said, well, you know, you're never going to be free like me until you die <laughs> because, because he was like, you've got bills and you've got a family and you've got a reputation and you've got all these things that you have to keep up in the community. And I don't have any of that. Are you familiar with Ryo, Ryokan? Is that how you said it? Ryokan? The, okay. the Japanese, 17th century Japanese priest. Yeah. yeah. You know how he, um, you know, you know, so he got Dharma transmission and they tried to make him a teacher and he like, he disappeared in the middle of the night. He's like, and just live as a beggar. It kind of reminds me of that guy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> with the moons, he's the one with the moon story, right? That he like couldn't give yeah. the guy the moon. Exactly. Yeah. 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 He reminds yeah. me of that guy too. Yeah. And the, the, the one story with him um, where one of his disciples found him and says, I'm going to stay with you, master. And he's like, all right, but you have to do everything I do. It's like, all right, all right. And then, like, soon after that, they're walking down the street and they find a corpse that had some food. So Ryokan sits down, starts eating the food, and is um, like basically like next to the court, you know, pulling the food <laughs> off the corpse, eating it. And I think his student like throws up, and he's like, "All right, you're done." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think trying to follow that homeless guy around for a day might be kind of like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so. You know, hearing about that guy, I mean, clearly he's probably, um, you know, touched, touched some sort of awakening. I vein, felt like right? it. Yeah, he has that energy, you know, that weird energy you can't explain. And, you know, and, I, and sometimes I think Zen might be unique in the entire world of spiritual disciplines that's really focuses on taking that freedom and non-duality kind of integrating it with life you know yeah. like you know like kind of the form is emptiness emptiness is form type of thing you know and i and I, you know i wonder um you know if this i mean obviously it probably won't happen but you know that's probably what he needs you know mm-hmm. some way to kind of ground that that yeah. freedom with reality somehow i feel like 
I always think about when the Dalai Lama turned those people away and said, you know, you shouldn't be a Buddhist. You should go back and be a good Christian if you want to really study Buddhism. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like that guy would get anything out of Buddhism. And I don't feel like it's not because yeah. Buddhism is like important. I get what you're saying. Like, I think that that has something that he could benefit from, but I don't think his like language is yeah, that, that, you know? Yeah. I meant like, yeah, I, definitely. I don't think, you know, be like here, go to the session, you know, here's this car. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, I was just drawing a contrast, you know, what, what kind of makes them kind of cool is that it, yeah. It kind of has that, um, you know, has that dynamic of the, the path. I think it would. I think if he was open to that, I think he would find a lot. I think you're right, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so another story you talked about um, was the girl who's eating the glass. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And then I know you were kind of facing a dilemma because you were asked to give some advice on what to do with her. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that one? I have to speak kind of generally about it because I can't really, you know, give away like any specific stuff about yeah. that. But we do, there is a disease, a mental disease that makes people eat things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the things that they eat are not, um, not good, mm-hmm. not good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of am, have made like sort of a little bit of a connection with this person because she's come to the hospital so many times. Mm-hmm. And um she always has to come back and she knows she's going to have to come back. And that is kind of a, it's a different kind of thing, you know, when you're sitting with somebody that knows what's happening to them and can't do anything about it. than somebody who is searching for something or trying to figure out something or is trying to fight or avoid something. It's like, sometimes it's almost kind of a, it feels kind of Zen to me. Like when the people are like, this is what it is. And I just have to be with this somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so you, um, so you, you got transmitted with Soji, you know, you became a full priest. I know you have a couple students, but you're also, you, you're kind of continuing on your practice with um, kind of the white plum coin work, right? Yeah. With you, Russ. You know, what, so first of all, what are all the answers of the quans you've done? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know, what, what, can you talk a little bit about that, like that process, like how you got into it, what it's been yeah. like for you? Russ, um, Russell Mitchell is my teacher. Neighbor kids are kind of going crazy. Go ahead, please. No. Russell Mitchell is my uh, koan teacher, and he was a, uh, he got transmission from Shoji, you know, the same time as me. We were both students under Shoji uh-huh. in Matsuoka lineage. And um, I wanted to learn about koans. I wanted to learn how to use koans, you know, and things like that. And I also wanted to be kind of associated with, you know, another lineage because like a lot of these Western Zen lineages kind of evaporate away sometimes. And I, I need something pretty solid to like prove to the hospitals that are all Christian based that I'm who I say I am, you know. So I just thought it'd be a good idea and I, I wanted to learn how to have koans anyway so that I have something more I could add in the tool belt to teach. And mm-hmm. Shoji was kind of like not really super happy about it at first, but then I think he understood and he was okay with it. <laughs> so I, I studied with Russ and it's so cool when I get to do like one of those famous koans, you know, that mm-hmm. I've read about since I was, you know, really young. And mm-hmm. now it was like just always so wild and didn't understand anything that was going on in it. And now I actually can like say an answer that gets accepted. It's really feels 
great. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, how, how do you feel like it's kind of changed the texture or dynamics of your practice? Yeah, I, I really like the way koans kind of help you figure out what is actually happening in this situation, what's important and what's just stuff that you can just, you know what I mean? Like, it, this doesn't matter and let this go. And that's been pretty huge for me, especially like when I'm working in the ER and stuff or when I'm home and I'm just having a panic attack or I'm like screaming in the shower because something was so awful. And it's like, okay, what's really happening right now? Uh, I think I was talking to Dosho Port one time about koans and he said, you know, in the shower, we say, where is Moo? When we're reaching for the soap bar, when we, when we do that, you know, and it's like, I feel like koans have helped me at least be able to just really grasp onto what's essential and what's really happening and just deal with that. And when you do that, you can really get through a lot that you don't think you can, because I think there's so much that's just not necessary to suffer under and deal with. There's so much that we just grab onto and take on that we don't have to. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, um, is there anything else you'd want to talk about before we wrap up here? Well, that was, the, that was a lot. Thank you so much yeah. for letting me just talk and talk about my life. Yeah. It's uh, fascinating and, touching i really appreciate it i hope so man thank you so much yeah if um people wanted to kind of connect with you about the chaplaincy or always teaching or yeah you know um what, what what's kind of the best mechanism there is it facebook or yeah i think facebook is kind of what i use as my teaching platform as a priest and so i think probably reaching out to me there would be fine but i also i'd be happy to give them my email or my phone number whatever they're comfortable with i'm not really interested that much in taking on students i don't really think of myself as like a good teacher i don't understand enough about zen really i'm not a great priest but i think i'm a pretty good chaplain and i can definitely help you down that path you know what i mean and i can definitely point you to some really good teachers but probably barry could do a lot better than I could in that regard both in teaching and in like pointing you to a good teacher no. <laughs> i was like barry who oh wait not me you know way more uh, than me man <laughs> uh, maybe some book learning um um cool well i really appreciate the time um yeah. okay okay thank you All right. later my friend